if we can somehow muster the strength to come together and get people that we admire to write down their experience and think about their personal and their sort of intellectual uh, contextualization of this moment, not only would it might maybe help people now deal with this loss, but also in the future, help with our complete inability to know what was gonna happen next. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi there. Good evening, everyone. I'm so happy that you were able to join us tonight for this event to discuss this incredible new book, Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. And I would love to introduce the uh, editors of this amazing volume and get our discussion off the ground. But I thought what we would first do is just have a moment of silence to recognize two really important moments. One, the subject matter of this volume that this incredible trio brought to our uh, collective attention, but also to honor one of the uh, extraordinary authors who is in this volume, Gwendolyn Midwell Hall, who we are all just very, very bereft at her passing. And we just would love to take a moment of silence before we begin, if that's all right. Thank you all for that. I think that this convening is, uh, above anything else, it's a really bittersweet occasion. What brought us all together this night was one of the most really horrific and traumatizing events of our generation. At the same time, it is an event that brought people together in completely different ways. It has bounded people together in ways that they could never have predicted. And it certainly has bound these three editors together uh, who who came together to do a really a moment of reckoning with with this moment of the pandemic, but I think more broadly with this century, with this epic, with this era that we're in through a historical lens. Because the one thing that we all share here together is the fact that we are historians. And we are also, of course, citizens of this nation, very interested in thinking always about how the past and the present intersect and how we can use that to good to move forward in the future. And I want to begin by just reading one quick thing to kind of orient us into this volume before I turn it over and have this discussion this evening with these editors about and authors, because of course, they also are contributors to this incredible volume that we're going to share with you tonight. 
After Life, they write, is a bold experiment inspired by the writers who documented American life during the Great Depression and World War II for the Works Progress Administration. We asked 21st century writers to try and understand America in a moment that seemed at once to be both rapidly descending into something long feared and simultaneously to be rebirthing into something wondrous at all costs. We asked them to create a collective history about the start of this epoch as it unfolds. We envisioned a book that gave historians and legal experts a chance to write about their present as long as they meditated on the long 2020 through the prism of American history. And I think that that is just such a great capturing of both the monumental importance of what these three set out to do, which is uh, really to reckon with a moment that has been unfolding even as we still speak, sadly. But also to ask us to do that, I was also one of the authors in this collection, to do this at a moment when I'm not sure that any of us really felt that we were equipped to stand back from it enough to reflect on anything. And yet what came, I felt, was just a really remarkable reflection. I'm going to step out of my little uh, uh, hypothesizing what you all might have thought about it as well and just stop and say, I'd love to welcome first these editors. Raylan Barnes, of course, who has been one of the, uh, a dear friend, but also uh, really a shining beacon to get this volume off the ground, as well as her partner in crime here, Carrie Lee Merritt, who has also been a visionary in this. And none of this would also have been possible with, of course, my very, very long-term friend, Yahura Williams. It's so good to see you, Yahura. I would love to talk first, before we do anything else, just individually, maybe go from one to the other of you about why you wanted to do this and what what kind of came to you beyond the specifics of what it would become in that moment when it first occurred to you. Why this? Why this moment? When I know that each of you as individuals were also struggling so much to make sense of this in your own worlds as you were trying to freeze it and document it. Maybe we can start with you, Raylan, and then just go down um, and Carrie and then Carrie Lee, and then we'll go to Uhuru. Sure. Thank you so much, Heather, for hosting us and also the Haymarket. I also want to give a shout out to um, Trevor Perry, who's one of our really influential editors who really helped pull this together for us when you're right. It was very difficult sometimes to maintain sort of the, the intimate and the big picture while you were living this. So we all really are indebted to him. Um, so for me, there was both intellectual and on the ground motivations. Um, some of the intellectual ones uh, came early. So I was commuting back and forth between New York and New Jersey, which were definitely hit um, quite hard and early during the pandemic. And you mentioned the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. And as a cultural historian, that is something that um, I teach often, but also I, I think almost all of us rely on um, as historians. So for those who don't know, during uh, the Great Depression and World War II, Roosevelt put together the Works Progress Administration, which employed 8.5 million people. And so most people are familiar with um, the fantastic innovations they made in terms of architecture, the national parks, but they also had five branches related to the arts. Um, 
art, music, theater, the writer's uh, core, and then also they had historians. And what they set out to do was document what was happening in America during the Great Depression and World War II, but also um, deal with historical memory throughout American history. And as I'm sure every historian felt <laughs> during this, in addition to uh, you know everyday Americans, there were parts of the pandemic, the uh, sort of amazing political um, <laughs> turn of events, and then also the racial uprisings that just felt completely absurd and insane, and there was no way to process it. And I just kept waiting, like, why is nobody documenting this historically? Why is nobody bringing everyone together? Um, and also, in terms of being on the ground, I, I kept thinking multiple times, you know, I would love to be trained to give vaccinations, you know, why, why is there sort of no grassroots effort to bring us together? The other intellectual thing um, is that approaching election night 2020, I was on Twitter and that's where the three of us um, really originally met and interact. And I sort of just sent off this crazy Twitter thread where I was trying to think through how unique it felt in the 2020 election that there seemed to be the sort of specter of mass death that was really framing a lot of the political discourse. So Joe Biden talks about the fact that he ran because on his deathbed, his son, Bo, who most likely died of cancer that was compounded by um, exposure to toxic elements in um, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, basically said, dad, you need to do this. And in addition, when um, uh, RGB died, uh, John Lewis, um, uh, C.T. Vivian, there, there just seemed to be this feeling that not only were we voting to preserve our physical health um, and our democracy, but that we were also fulfilling the lifelong legacies of these American heroes and that we all needed to take the physical risk to go vote to go in the streets and preserve what we both love about America, but also, you know, the, what, what we believe America can be. And I was thinking a lot about the Civil War and World War II. And Yohuri saw this and he's like, girl, what are you doing? Don't be tweeting out these ideas. Um, and he sent me a message and basically said, you know, think critically about what you're saying and that maybe this, this is a project. And at the time, you know, I was very early on in my tenure track career and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have time for another project. Like you're crazy. The world's falling apart. The apocalypse is coming. Um, but then I talked to him about it and then I reached out to Carrie Lee and um, both of them are tenacious, creative, hardworking people um, who go the extra mile and everyone agreed like, yes, let's try this. Let's contact our historian friends, legal experts, artists and create a space where we could we could have the freedom to reflect on the past and the present in a way that we are not normally afforded um, in our jobs professionally, or at least they're not rewarded oftentimes. Um, and so that was sort of the immediate impetus. Um, and in our conversation, I can talk more about the sort of on the ground motivations, things that I saw. But the last thing that I'll say is that because of the isolation, 
working on this project for me, there were times when I was completely alone in parts of the nation, separated from my family, person I loved, my best friends. And so knowing, okay, tomorrow at 9 a.m., we're going to wake up and we're going to work on this um, was something to look forward to, something to get out of bed for. And it brought so many people together that it was really um, buoying in a moment when um, things were just really hard. But I'd love to hear others' thoughts. Thank you. And Carrie Lee, what about you, both intellectually and, and personally? What, what compelled you to uh, invest what was uh, uh, anyone who's ever done a, uh, an edited volume knows that it resembles herding cats and uh, <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, but yet you were all so devoted to it and so committed to it. Tell me about why for you. Well, I mean, it's such a brilliant idea and, and it's such a necessary thing. And I think the term that I'm using now to describe what we're going through, you know, two and a half years into it is I feel like we're being gaslit, you know, not only by the government, but by mainstream media that this, you know, massive loss has not happened. Um, and in some ways that the last two years politically have not happened. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago. And, and I understand the, the, you know, why people want to just move on and, and get past the pain. But unless we actually deal with this and process it, uh, our grief is going to come out in all different ways. Um, it's going to come out physically. It's going to come out, um, you know, with uh, deaths of despair. We're going to see suicide rates climb. We're going to see you know, uh, all sorts of relationships disintegrate because we're not actually processing this pain and grief. And so I'm so grateful to all of you for being involved in this. And I'm uh, just thinking about how every single writer in this book, but particularly the people, the four people right here, um, you know, what we went through personally as we're trying to write this, we all have very different individual stories of loss, of sickness, of, of you know, major catastrophic life events. And I think that that's what makes this so resonant is that we're able to connect that to every single American because every single American does have that kind of loss. Every single American had a major loss, whether it was a relationship, a divorce, a job, a career, um, you know, loss of loved ones, loss of, of identity. Um, and as Rayland said, you know, this was a time of great loneliness. This was a time of, of isolation and, and so many people were so, so lonely. So, uh, you know, this is in many ways, uh, hopefully, you know, a light in that darkness. This is hopefully um, a salve and a balm in some ways uh, for what we've all been through, because every single person in this country and in this world has experienced this pain in some different way. I think just one of the things you said just struck me so much, which is that even as this was volume was unfolding and people were trying to figure out like what what part of this would they contribute to or how could they contribute to it or, or what really could one say uh, that landscape was shifting even as we were all taking pen to paper and considering it because of, as you point out uh, just the personal was so intertwined with the, with the process of trying to, to record it. Uh, and, and that, because it was at the height of the pandemic, really the, the, or the depths, the height when you all started this, right. If I could jump in really quick before you hear answers too, we started this in pre-vaccination pandemic America, which meant um, a very different thing. And, and I 
think that we were all very conscious of documenting that era. But you're exactly right that that meant that an author might drop off. And it was because they were deathly ill. We had people hospitalized, people bedridden. Um, and even after the writing, in the editing process, that struggle continued. So we'll get into that, but I'd love to hear your comments. Well, including me, because I had a, a heart procedure in the middle of our, our editing process. And, uh, you know, that was was difficult. I love the way you framed that, Heather, because in a lot of ways, um, one of the things that was great for me in working with Carrie Lee and, and Ray Lynn was really having an opportunity to process with other historians what this moment meant. And I kept thinking about the words of John Hope Franklin and Abraham Eisenstadt in the opening of the American History Series. Every generation writes its own history for it tends to see the past in the foreshortened perspective of its own experience. And I've always thought about that in terms of, of course, scholars who are writing about the civil rights movement could see that through the lens of the American Civil War. Uh, but I was also thinking in a way that when that night that, that Raylan was tweeting, it was almost this kind of declaration that we can't wait for people to write about this from the perspective of historians, that we had to, in some sense, declare that it was important enough for us to capture those voices. I think about your piece in particular, the permeability of cells. You know, we'd wait years for some scholar to figure out that maybe we should be looking at the lens of the pandemic through those who are incarcerated and what that means. And so to have some of the best uh, legal minds, historians come together in that moment and to write about those issues in a way that I think were present um, and powerful to capture those voices was both the, in the spirit of the WPA, but also uh, in the spirit of, you know, kind of fulfilling what James Baldwin talked about when he said the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you can alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. I think in in um, each in its own way, those essays, Phil Deloria's phenomenal essay, Robert uh, Sy's essay, uh, one of my favorites in the book, uh, Jacqueline Dowd Hall talking about, you know, um, dealing with, you know, her family history, same thing with Robin Kelly, was all of us kind of altering the way that we were thinking about that moment. We went from talking about Confederate monuments to wit witnessing mass death on a scale that was incomprehensible. Uh, for myself personally, I went from not being able to watch the news because I was so destabilized by things that were happening politically in the country to having John Lewis inspire me in a way that I didn't believe was possible in the final letter that he pens to the American people um, posthumously, together we can redeem the soul of America. I think that's really what um, drew me to want to participate in this, and I couldn't have worked with two better uh, human beings. Um, and I think that that's part of it too. This book allowed us to, um, in a very real sense, reclaim our humanity in a moment where it was very easy uh, to other, and it was very easy to feel, in some sense, a, a great deal of despair. Um, it wasn't just the physical death. It was the death of community, I think, in, in a sense that we felt this loss. And so being able to connect in this way and to be, being able to have some incredible scholars kind of weigh in from their various perspectives, from Martha Hodes talking about the parallels between the Civil War and, and the pandemic um, to, you know, Robin Kelly in a, in a very powerful way talking about um, you know, writing the obituary for his father. Each of those essays, I think, helped us deal with our own grief in, in very meaningful ways. It's interesting. I was thinking also about, um, you know, Raylan's point about this uh, all coming together before the vaccine. And I was thinking about what a what an odd a marker that was in the process of writing this. And I'm sure it was even more so for all of you being kind of at the helm of it, because I think it highlighted in ways that even the, the, the pre-vaccine era did not 
this the some of the major themes that ended up coming out of this volume uh, not that when I want to talk about all of these themes in a moment but you know not just the themes of hope but the th- deep themes of inequality deep thing deep uh, themes of injustice and the thing about the the vaccine arriving was that it it was just such a clear example in lived moment in lived time of how something so horrific that wasn't originally hitting everyone the same way. Even the fix to it wasn't was almost doubling down on that sense of kind of inequalities and injustices behind this whole pandemic. And and so again, just this theme of it kept shifting. The ground kept shifting. I think under all three of you as you were writing, was it hard? To imagine conceptualizing this as a project, I mean, thank God for us all that that Haymark saw the beauty of this project and and what a perfect home for this book. But at least initially, was it hard to imagine how to to, to really kind of pitch this to someone and say, look, we have all these people who just want to reflect on something in a moment when at some level, we didn't know what the something was even or how it would resolve. What did you all think? What was that experience like just trying to get it? Imagine an audience for this or imagine a publisher for this. Well, we're so grateful to Haymarket because we knew, obviously, that time was of the essence, that that was going to be our biggest struggle, um, was to get something out as quickly as possible. Because, you know, let's face it, there are going to be a lot of books on the 2020s, a lot of books on the pandemic, a lot of books on COVID, a lot of books on Trump. Um, And we wanted to go ahead and, and get ourselves out ahead of that and establish um, you know, real history, real you know, with with award winning Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, you know, all of these amazing historians and legal scholars in their own right. And then, as as we've said, give them just the opportunity to write in a non formulaic way about anything that they wanted. Give them that creativity uh, that they they never really get, and that they should absolutely have. And I think what was so surprising um, for so many of these essays is that you would think that they would be political, or that you think that they would be more about what was going on, um, you know, on a mass mass scale. But so many of them are so intensely personal. I just want to shout out Keith Ellison's piece. You know, I mean, he is in the midst of prosecuting Derek Chauvin, of course, in uh, Minnesota as the attorney general. And I really thought that he would end up writing about that. And instead, he wrote this beautifully moving uh, memorial for his mother, um, who sadly passed of COVID. And so, you know, it's, it's pieces like that, that just show you that even in the midst of everything he was going through, um, you know, publicly, he was dealing with that private loss. Um, and, and so it's, it's beautiful and touching. I, I highly recommend that one. It is worth also saying for those who don't know, um, the three of you were very, very open. You didn't say, uh, you know, Heather, I want you to write about prisons because that's what you write about. I mean, it just, I, I sort of felt the need to do that, but not because you, you said write about whatever, whatever you all want. And as you know, what comes out is just such an interesting, powerful reflection on, on the way in which people were processing it in the moment, you know, and, and, or felt the need to reflect on it in the moment. 
I think we we were fortunate in that sense, Heather, too, because we got some folks like Tara Hunter who were workshopping ideas. Um, Peniel in Third Reconstruction, Tara Hunter and her piece on the new Negro servants uh, disease. We're saying, hey, look, if we look at this this racial reckoning in, in terms of a long arc of history, there are themes here that we can point to. We can talk about how when Jacqueline Hall talks about the grief that came before the grief, it is the afterlife of this inequality that lives in a very real sense in our present, things that we haven't overcome uh, and that we are forced to contest and deal with in this moment in a way where people can't turn away. I think that's what was so powerful about that 2020 moment, May of 2020, is that uh, for the first time, you couldn't go back to business as usual. The world had stopped and we had to look at our flaws in the mirror in a way that was, um, I think, transformational. When the vaccine came out, I think it allowed people to creep back into this mindset that, um, and until January 6th, I think we were, were moving back in the direction of, you know, let's just put all this behind us. And I remember um, talking to Carrie Lee and, and Ray Lynn the day after that happened, literally. And they're saying, we have to address this in the book. This is the calm, you know, this, when we talk about the afterlife, this is the afterlife of, of this moment politically, but it's much deeper than the politics. It's about the fracturing in some sense of this American um, uh, vision. And how do we, in some sense, address this in a way that will be helpful for future scholars? But how do we let people, you know, um, deal with this in the moment as well? Because it was important for uh, people to be able to talk about this and to, uh, to be able to kind of look back and say, um, Donald Trump was a triumph in some sense, not simply of racial um, animus. Um, it is, you know, uh, in some sense, this need that we have to look at the renewal of what we mean by American democratic practice and mm. how deeply we're committed to that practice. And so it was um, cathartic writing about that. It was cathartic reading about that. It was cathartic listening to, you know, um, and having really uh, brilliant people share their perspectives on that. Interesting. Raylan, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think going back to your question, too, about um, the publishing process, there's sort of two ways to see this. Uh, either initially we set out to write a book about mass death, which you'd think, mm, who wants that in the middle of a global pandemic? Or, you know, as Carrie Lee would remind us constantly, this is a story about American perseverance. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, I, I work so much with the, the original WPA documents. And those those created sort of the classic Americana uh, pop culture and visual culture of the mid 20th century, something like the migrant mother photograph that Dorothea Lange took. Um, what I remember when I, you know, we'll get to, into our essays, I'm sure, but one of the things I write about was having to drive across the country. And I thought originally, oh, I'm going to take photographs of everything because she's such a hero um, to me. And there was nothing to take photographs of because there were no people. Um, and so I had to kid around, okay, you know, what do we do? And then I started thinking about, well, you know, the Grapes of Wrath really started out with Nora Babs research as someone who's working for the WPA. And so I thought, okay, if we can somehow muster the strength to come together and get people that we admire to write down their experience and think about their personal and their sort of uh, intellectual uh, contextualization of this moment, not only would it might maybe help people now deal with this loss, but also in the future um, help with sort of the... Um, <sighs> 
our complete inability to know what was going to happen next. I mean, I think most people experienced this during 2020 where it was like a jack in the box from hell. It was like, what, what is going on today? Oh, the mail shut down. No more mail. Okay. You know, um, it, it was just uh, completely overwhelming. And so also just being able to document that um, unexpectedness. And as you mentioned too, um, I mean, this is, it sounds dramatic to say, but it was the truth. We had no idea whether or not all of us were going to live a hundred percent had no clue. Um, and I think unfortunately losing Gwen, um, we wrote a line in the introduction. There's no guarantee that all of us will live to the end of this project. Um, and so she did not get to see it. Um, and so trying to balance documenting something that in some ways is um, the most traumatic and horrific thing most of us will experience in America, hopefully knock on wood, but also time, like you said, just incredible coming together um, absurdity. There were things about the pandemic that were quite funny um, lengths that we had to go to, to protect ourselves. Um, and so I think that we were interested in like the duck and cover of our generation, you know, uh, you know, one day you can imagine, you know, funny things about this. I think that's a really good point. Even while it was so traumatic, people couldn't figure out how to articulate it. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about, um, you know, the comedian who would make fun of, uh, who would do the lip syncing to Trump every day. Like there were moments of total absurdist joy during the pandemic. And we wanted to capture all of that tangle together. Mm-hmm. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Carrie Lee, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I will say as editors writing uh, the introduction and the conclusion, we did have to go back every few months and update and update and update. And that was a really morbid process, um, especially with the numbers of dead. You know, you'd leave something for a few months and go edit a few essays and then come back to the intro and having to then, you know, think about the numbers of dead. We put it, really, and I put it in terms of cities, and I think that's really a, a you know, a horrifically 
very a brilliant way to think about it because it, it puts it in very stark terms that people can can understand. And when you're, you know, early on in the months of the very first months of the pandemic, and you're talking about cities the size of DC and Seattle gone. I mean, that that puts the scale of mass death and loss, you know, in, in a way that, that people can really conceptualize it. And I think that that's what the media has been really, really bad at. And this is probably where historians really can help is to really show, um, you know, how horrific this has been, even as much as we want to kind of go on with our lives. I don't know if it's a, a type of PTSD or it's a way of survival of just trying to to deal with it, you know, right now and not have to process that grief. But, um, you know, it's, it needs to be documented. It needs to be documented the right way. Uh, none of us are medical historians. So we had to do a, a, a quick, um, you know, almost like a comps learning <laughs> curve on you know, brushing up on medical history and the history of vaccines and inoculations and all of that kind of stuff. But it was, um, it was so worth it. And I hope that this can be widely used by teachers, not only in in college classrooms, but uh, especially in high school and some of it, even in middle school, I think is adaptable. And I think uh, just adding to that, one of the other things that in addition to the loss that we were constantly having to update were the variants. Um, I think Omicron and Delta are mentioned tw- like one time each, so twice, because uh, the waves would change how we were, you know, maneuvering with it. And then also, as Kaylee said, um, none of us are medical historians and we went out of our way trying to recruit constantly, but what was happening um, completely understandably between the pandemic and Roe, our medical historians right now are very actively on the front lines of um, not just trying to protect people, but, you know, save lives. And so that was another fascinating thing to witness how the contours of the pandemic itself um, shaped who could tell the stories. Another another demographic I tried to find, um, uh, someone who did Filipino history, and because of the disproportionate way uh, they're, they're serving as nurses, I couldn't get anybody who could find the time to sit down and write. And so there are these holes that we also um, point to and say, there's a reason that this voice isn't here. It's not because we didn't think about it. It's because they, they were very legitimately on the ground doing, trying to, to make it to the next day. Well, on this point of history, I would love it if we could, um, I think it's, we would do an injustice to the book to not spend some time uh, really talking about that, which is it is not just a collection uh, of reflections and it's not it's not just uh, a series of musings on this horrific moment, but it is, it is very much uh, a, a trying to think of the present through the lens of the past and trying to uh, make sense of what you've all pointed out was it's so many times nonsensical. There, there seemed to be no precedent in some respect because how could one have imagined a, uh, you know, a president like Trump, one, you know, it was, it was kind of looking at a, even a January 6th was like, are, you know, are, are you kidding me? But at the same time, we know as historians that there's a way in which the horror of what this was, there are all too many precedents. There are all too many moments in the past where people have had to endure truly horrific 
uh, everything from mass casualties to uh, much slower forms of uh, genocide and, and um, alienation and everything else. So I would love to hear your all of your reflections before we get to the more positive parts of it, of which there are also many. But what essays really did you each uh, learn from or really moved you particularly from from the point of view of what they illuminated to you uh, historically, maybe gave you a pause that this was horrible, but we have been here before, or we can imagine navigating this in a way that we've navigated it before, or or just illuminating it for whatever reason, um, in the darker moments of it, you know, the, the negatives of it, the inequalities, the injustices, the horror of it, what essay stood out to all of you uh, individually? And they might be quite different, I would imagine. Uhuru, what, what about you? That's hard for me because it would be between Gwynn and Stephen Barry. Um, Stephen Barry's Confederates Take the Capital. I remember reading that and just, you know, his ability to put into context January 6th through the lens of these other assaults on Washington, this assault on democracy that's represented by January 6th and the long shadow of the Civil War, I found very compelling. Um, I enjoyed reading that piece. I learned a lot from that. Um, It was kind of fun working with Peniel as he was working through um, his concepts of, of the Third Reconstruction, something that we wrote about as well and scholars were talking about, but it was kind of interesting to, to hear him lay that out. But uh, and, and then, of course, um, less so from a historical perspective, but just because I thought it was so brilliantly executed, Tara Hunter's um, piece on the new Negro servants disease, her ability to look back at the treatment of black washerwomen, um, you know, in that position at the turn of the century and how they were blamed for the spread of communicable disease into a very, you know, it's, it's a very short but powerful piece point to some of the same things that we heard about the spread of COVID-19 um, in our contemporary moment, kind of being recycled um, and used to, um, in some sense, racialize uh, COVID was really powerful to me. So those are the three that stand out. My favorite essay as a whole in, in the book is actually um, Carrie Lee's um, and her conversation about deaths of despair. Um, it's very rare that you're touched emotionally by something that you read. And there was something about that moment and reading that piece. I'll never, I'll not forget that as long as I live. There were two pieces that kind of struck me in that way. One was Eula Taylor. She talked about losing her Starbucks table, which sounds, you know, you kind of look at that from the standpoint of, well, what does she mean by that? But it was this metaphor for everything that we lost in the routine. And that resonated with me because I'm a person who is governed by routine. Like, you know, I go to the gym at the same time and I'm very regimented. And the loss of that routine was devastating. But deaths of despair touched me in a way that it was like, have I really processed in a meaningful way what this will mean in years to come as I look back and have these, and, and it's starting to happen now, uh, the trauma of what we lived through. I laughed like last night, I sent Raylan a text. I was rereading her piece on the plane. And I think it's a, it's a, uh, a good marker of healing when you can begin to laugh at something that was so, you know, elements of things that were traumatic and see the humor and small things that were in fact humorous now that you're past the, the hardest part. But it's also, there's something to be said for a piece of writing, bringing you back to a space where you can experience in a very raw sense what that moment meant and to remain hopeful, even though you you want to remember. I don't think that we, I don't ever want to be in a place where we don't forget the deaths of despair, the trauma that we endured. And I think there'll be, um, you know, the long nightmares, the scars of that 
are not just emotional, they're physical, they're on the U.S. Capitol, um, they're in American cities, they're in policing, they're in the social determinants of health. So, um, you know, I kind of went beyond your question, Heather, but I, you know, Stephen Berry from a historical standpoint and Gwen, but from um, just an emotional standpoint, I think Carrie Lee really, I've been a long time since I cried and reading something and that got me. I will say, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more who wrote about your piece, Carrie Lee. And I, and I would also just say that one of the things about this essay as a collection, for those who might be listening to this, who are historians or who are teachers or who, who want to be a writer or are a writer, the thing about this volume that was so powerful to me is how as historians, we often give so little sh- so sh- such short shrift to uh, what it means to write. Uh, we are so we're so bound to the footnote. We are so bound to the argument. And by freeing everyone to just say you need to somehow kind of convey this or articulate this uh, at a much kind of different level, at a different register, we're not used to that. Uh, we're not we're not asked to do it. We're not invited to do it. And unless we you know write maybe more popular books as historians, we've never even had to try to do it. And that was that your piece, Carrie Lee, is a real model in that. I mean, how do how do you, we're, we have a poverty of adjectives? How, how many times can one say something is horrible or, or horrific or terrible or daunting or painful? It's not about the adjectives anymore. It's not about the descriptive language. It's, a, it's how you have to evoke it somehow. And, and it's just, there's so many pieces in there that do that so beautifully. I would, I would assign this to, to students just to, how do you, how do you write? Uh, I have to say it was completely off topic, but I, I, I have thought about this many times looking at these pieces, but K- Carrie Lee, what did you, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. You guys, this is on you, me. but it's, you made me choke up. Thank you so much. That's that's wonderful to hear because yes, this is this is something that I've thought about writing for a very long time, and I've obviously been uh, afraid to on many levels, and it was deeply cathartic in many ways. I'm still kind of anxious about it coming out, but I hope um, that it helps a lot of people. That's why I did it. And um, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be trained um, in a department for my PhD that, again, I was Stephen Barry's student. So, you know, it says it all. They did really emphasize craft um, for historians and they taught us how to write. You know, they taught us uh, not to write with jargon, not to write with, you know, in a high lofty tone. They taught us to be able to write to anyone. And that's something that I really, really value about my education. Again, public education at University of Georgia, I will add. Um, And so, Again, we chose people based on relationships and friendships, obviously, but we chose people we knew were good writers, you know, were excellent writers. And there are so many amazing historians and so many people we could have included. I'm very proud of the diversity of this, but I am equally as proud of the quality of writers. And that was number one on our list was to really, as Raylan was talking about, to make it evocative, to make it in the vein of these WPA, you know, these beautifully moving narratives. We had to pick good writers. Um, Heather, I love your piece. And I think it is, again, the, the, the dearth of information on what's happening in prisons and jails across this country is just disgusting. And 
dehumanizing um, what's going on in Alabama right now um, in particular. And so I, I, I'm so grateful that you made that, again, a, a piece that's relatable to anyone and anyone can and can be empathetic and sympathetic um, to the plight of, of the people in your story. Uh, I also want to shout out Robert Tsai, um, who's an amazing friend. He's a, a professor of law at Boston University. And he wrote an amazing piece about growing up in the Pacific Northwest as an Asian immigrant or his parents were immigrants and uh, first gen and kind of living in this town going through deindustrialization. And his writing is, is just almost poetic. So I, if you like really, really good literature, you will love his piece. And just really quickly, Carrie Lee, and, and just in terms of the history, were there any pieces that you just thought, God, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about that predecessor or precursor or, or, or feeling less alone in some respects, reading this kind of in, in bigger context? So um, one that hasn't been spoken about yet is Martha Hodes. And she actually compares what's going on with COVID deaths and Lincoln and the Civil War. And there are some amazing parallels as somebody who's, who is a Civil War era historian. I think that is just a beautiful piece to teach with, um, you know, even at a high school level, because she hits those notes so clearly, just the way Martha Hodes does. You know what I mean? She makes, she writes clear, crisp, um, makes those connections, uh, you know, as as beautifully as possible. So I definitely recommend that one. Yeah, totally agree. Raylan, what did you think in terms of essays that stood out to you for for what they taught that we might not have thought about? The problem is when you're editing, the one you're working on is always the best. <laughs> um, but I think uh, from a historical perspective and something that needs to be taught added to the curriculum that I'm very excited that we published was Monica Minas Martinez's piece, which is about the, um, it, it begins with the anniversary of the mass shooting at Walmart in El Paso. And she talks about how her last research trip professionally before the pandemic was to the border to work for human rights. And she gives this long, um, very clean history of, of sort of, the way in which we have border history and border terror, um, the way in which Mexican-Americans and Mexican migrants have been demonized for sort of as a medical menace, um, whether that was uh, for bringing a possible contagion, um, the sort of brutal delousing experiences that they would experience at the border um, and all kinds of human dehumanizing things that they um, experience. And then also she talks about vigilante violence and sort of the paramilitary violence at the border and really brought together a lot of strings for us, both in terms of the pandemic, mass shootings, the kind of paramilitary violence that we saw on January 6th. Um, and she really integrates the multi-racial uh, American West into American history and puts it at the center um, and says, you know, this is not a peripheral history. This is the very center of what's mobilizing the 2020 election. And this is why it has been since the 19th century. Uh, since, you know, it, it, it's it's really profound how, how complex um, and how many different stories she's able to um, spin out just from looking at the victims of uh, 
this this white terrorist attack that happened to people at Walmart. I mean, there's nothing more American than going to Walmart. Uh, and um, if you might remember, I mean, there was a lot of rhetoric that the former president um, said and made that was fueling a lot of this this violence. And so she really breaks down in a profound way. I will say that um, for, for me, that I was so struck by how a volume that one, I think, imagined at least at first to really be a reflection on the the pandemic in some sort of an immediate kind of almost uh, in a medical way in a, in a kind of catastrophic natural disaster kind of way ended up uh, with these essays that uh, they re- the the links as you've all pointed out I mean these these tethers and links between the epidemiological and the political uh, and 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 how and and the racialization of of violence and how all of these may have become uh, exacerbated or even, uh, you know, unleashed in in uh, really troubling, uh, horrific ways that in the hands of historians, you quickly understand that that was not accidental. I mean, duh, but, but the way in which you're made to understand that it's not accidental and the way you're made to understand that these are, they, these are intimately bound uh, and inexorably linked. Um, and that this such a long history of why this pandemic did not fall evenly on everyone's homes and did not, even while at the same time, everyone was, uh, touched by it in in such profound ways uh, that that is just kind of a, it, you would say well how could there why why would we have a you know why are we talking about the Colfax massacre and why are we talking about uh, you know events you know older events at the border but yet so profoundly connected in ways that only these authors could do I, I was really moved by that as well what about the flip side of all that, though, what what in these essays were just kind of surprisingly hopeful or just kind of, um, wow, I, I, I feel much better after reading them, as opposed to also just being moved or kind of horrified at how we as a country can keep re- reproducing such inequality and such violence and injustice. What about the hope? What What really... What really made this a salve and a balm? Because I love those. I love those terms that this book is also. What do you think, you Let's go back to you for a minute on that. Um, it's a it's a great question, Heather. I the, they were talking about the the trio of essays in the very beginning: Monica, Phil, and um, Robert Sy, Somewhere USA. And Robert's piece um, is very powerful in that regard because you know growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, it's the same issues, deindustrialization, and but his, him describing his experience there and the haunting memory of what was and what can be or what what can emerge from the ashes is very hopeful in the end. Phil Deloria, writing about Mr. Bojangles, made me laugh in some sense because as a child, what I remember the most about the late 1970s is tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Dawn, uh, you know, that I song. Land of Dawn. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, we probably could all recite it at this point. But there was <laughs> Dating ourselves a little bit, huh? <laughs> we, we are. I think, in a, but in a way that was kind of interesting for me in, in having him talk about that because that song in a moment when probably if we talk about um, 
you know, for all the critique of Jimmy Carter and the malaise and everything else, America might have been at its lowest point. That's what drew people together is that this this cultural expression of unity in a song, like a, a very simple song and a, you know, tie yellow ribbon and remember, remember. That's what was so powerful to me is in the in the concluding essay by um, Carrie Lee and Ray Lynn um, in our concluding essay. But then in each and every one of these pieces, a call in your piece to remember the people who were locked away and what they went through and endured. So we don't do that again. How can we reimagine? How can this book drive us to think differently about so many things that we take for granted? Community in the form of a Starbucks table or um, music as a way to, to bring us together, not to forget those deaths of despair and to remember this trauma in a way that we um, really work to perfect in a way that John Lewis talked about, those elements of our union that um, ultimately we aspire to make us strong. And so that's what left me hopeful. It's like in, in every one of those essays, um, each one of those authors, even Mary Dujak, we haven't talked about her piece, which is amazing, um, where she's you know just, dealing with numbers. And I remember just that blew my mind. But even there, you come away from that with the sense that this is a call in a very real sense to remember what this moment felt like and to act. And a humbling moment. I, I, every one of these pieces makes you realize that if nothing else, this moment humbled everyone who imagined that, that, that uh, even the worst people that they really were in control or that there's a way to control certain things. I mean, for me, certainly the permeability of cells was really this reflection on how, you know, you may not even want to care about people who don't look like you or who you imagine as other. But at the end of the day, one of the things that COVID does is we are all human beings. And as human beings, that is such a humbling realization, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much, you know, who, who, what you imagine your powers to be, you are all potentially just one thing, which is a human being, but that there was a hope to that as well, which I, you just pointed to that comes out of that, uh, that humanness. You actually, in that piece, um, Heather, too, when you talked about solitary confinement in the context of that piece, there was a moment when I was reading that, when we first got the submission, where I was thinking at, it's it's horrible to make this comparison, but we were all in solitary in some sense, not in the way that you talk about um, the individuals that were sweating it out and, you know, the inhumanity of that in the midst of a global pandemic and being stripped away from human contact. But we got a little taste of that. Why wouldn't that drive us in some sense to want to reimagine prisons? Um, so I agree with you. I think in each one of those pieces, but your piece in particular, I just remember thinking to myself, my gosh, I remember when when my partner flew back to New York and New York City schools went back to school and I was alone in my apartment um, in, in Minnesota and thinking to myself, I, I'm not having human contact with people. I'm seeing people on a screen. I have that. But, you know, you're alone. I can't imagine what that would be like for people who are locked away and forgotten. Um, and, you know, now people can't even come to visit them. So I just appreciate it. I think the nuances in those pieces kind of drive your point home about what it means to read a volume like this and to come away with an appreciation for our shared humanity. Mm. And Carrie Lee, what about you? What was hopeful um, in the midst of this when you were approaching these essays? So Scott Paulson Bryant's essay is fantastic. And it's about him teaching throughout the pandemic and you know, teaching all of these students who have been hard hit 
you know, you know, people that are hit in the first wave, um, family members gone and how to how, you know, he is going into class every day in just utter despair and they keep him going. And it's just beautifully touching. And also Yuhuru's, I mean, his about it's called Dreams of My Great Grandfather. And it's really him. It's a micro history, right? It's, it's beautifully done micro history about um, you know, him finding out who exactly his great grandfather was and, and the fact that he is essentially, you know, Dean Yohuru Williams, author of so many books, was just cited in the New York Times, by the way, this week. Um, so, you know, he is the dream. He is the dream. And I just want to read you a passage from his because I think this is, you know, at this time, he was actually all over the news talking about George mm-hmm. Floyd's death mm-hmm. and the trial. And so he says, the testament to George Floyd's legacy won't be found solely in police reforms, but in Gianna Floyd's future and the future of her children and her children's children. For the most insidious wound of all may be the markers of racial injustice and violence left due to epigenetic harm passed down from generation to generation, inscribed in the scores of nameless, faceless people, so many of them dismissed by society as drug dealers, rum runners, and petty criminals. But they were ultimately survivors of both the burdens of American history and centuries of racial injustice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that message of survival is the ultimate and not survival at any cost, survival with great power, survival with great thinking forward about what could be different. What about you, Raylan? Well, I was also going to give a shout out to Scott, um, but I think one of the most amazing things about 2020, um, you know, as historians, we, we often talk about the struggle to not just write about something like slavery or World War II and focus on the horror, but that there is um, joy and hope. Um, you know, you her and I met because we've had to do multiple lectures about Juneteenth, which is really the essence of that tension. And so much about 2020 um, that was wonderful that I think Haymarket readers um, who are largely socially conscious activists can relate to was um, an incredible exhaustion level of like, when is the revolution coming? And the mass uprising of 20 million people going into the streets, risking their lives was really profound. Um, One thing that we tried to do from this, from even just in the introduction was to change the perspective, right? That it, it's very easy to tell the story of the pandemic in 2020 uh, focused on New York and New Jersey where I was. But when you look at the per capita loss, it really was happening in Navajo Nation and that's where we begin. And so for me personally, one of the artic- uh, one of the essays that I find really um, uh, joyful is uh, 2020, a year of epic victories amid historic loss which is by Mary Catherine Nagel. So Mary Catherine Nagel is an amazing uh, Creek playwright and also a total badass lawyer. Look her up. Her sister also runs um, a completely amazing podcast. Um, And she really talks about the experience with her children of going back to their reservation and talking about and dealing with um, what was happening in 2020 also in the context of um, the the Standing Rock generation. And when we think about American history and mass death and disease, 
I mean, where else can you begin than Native American history? Um, and so the way that she brings these things together, but leads on a very hopeful note um, about what happened um, in terms of Americans and also those who um, are, are tribal um, in tribal nations standing up and saying, you know what, actually, if this is a moment in which the humor, the, the history, sorry, the future is going to be decided and we're going to change American history. We're not, we're not going to continue in this direction. Um, and so I think, I think her piece is, is, is incredibly hopeful. And then I also want to reiterate um, Scott's. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To that, to that point about this tension really between writing this entire uh, collection in the midst of such uncertainty and such trauma on the one hand, and yet then getting these glimpses of both from the past and also from the provocative and powerful writing of people in the present of hope. How did you, from from a writer's point of view, share with us a little bit about how you decided to, to introduce and conclude this collection? Uh, like how did you... Uh, I, I will say an unenviable task at the very, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, what, how did you do that? What, what thought, how, how would you, le- how did you decide how to leave it? Knowing that, of course, that COVID is still with us, people are still dying, it's still not over, even the political circumstances so unstable, even now, but also not wanting you have to you have to honor the beauty of what's here and the hope that's here. Tell me about that. Anyone who who wants to run with that, you you're shaking your head like ah, we can't hear you. I I just wanted to jump in um, on this real quick, Heather, because I think uh, Carrie Lee and Ray Lynn have to talk about this. I thought I understood this, and when we pitched it, I had this vision, and it wasn't until we were actually in the process of writing it that I really. Um, Began to appreciate the brilliance of what Raylan had imagined and what her and Carrie Lee were able to put together, uh, because this wasn't just a recitation of what had happened. It wasn't a timeline of you know, you know, not the greatest hits, unfortunately, of everything that we should remember that was terrible about this. Woven into this was this kind of deep, um, uh, you, you know, provocative opportunity to think very deeply about the themes that tie all these essays together. And it made the conclusion much easier to write. But it was one of those things that was almost classic in some sense. We always tell um, students, you know, you don't you actually don't know where you're going to conclude. So you kind of you get the, the work done and you watching the two of them work at the end. And I have to let them speak to this in terms of that introduction, which I read now and I'm overwhelmed by how powerful it is. I couldn't see it. I was actually too deep in the weeds. I have no problem admitting that because I found myself waking up every day and going and this and they were able to take a hard step back and say, you know, the the goal here is that wherever this winds up, because at some point we have to put a pin in it, we have done enough for people to see and to be able to make those connections, to understand that connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Raylan, what about you? What did you? Yeah, hard to hard to answer. I mean, I will be completely truthful and say. I think for all of us, this is one of the hardest intellectual things we've ever had to do. Um, Sort of like we became a family where it it was something to wake up to and hopeful about. And other days it's like, oh my gosh, I can't handle this. Go away, please. Um, Because it was just that 
challenge to, to deal with the exact balance that you're talking about. Where does this start and where does this end? And what do you prioritize when you only have a few pages? Um, I, I can share the opening story of the introduction. It's about a, a woman named Margarita Donald. And I, I heard her story actually um, on the radio. I remember I was emptying out my grandmother's house. Um, grandma's 97 years old. In the middle of the pandemic, we needed to um, give her full-time care. And I just had the radio on while I was packing up dishes and doing everything. And I, I just remember I stopped and I turned and I, and I listened. I was engrossed by her story. So she was a Navajo translator um, who was going into the hospitals and helping the elders who who still speak their language um, to understand the procedures that were going on. And because of um, issues with hearing and also the sort of uh, the bodily aspects of language, she needed to start taking her mask off so that they could understand what was happening to them during COVID. And so or inevitably she um, contracted it. And it's a story about um, part of the reasons of inequality that uh, COVID became so serious in Navajo Nation, um, things like the complete lack of clean water, um, uh, no internet infrastructure, and uh, huge distance, distances to healthcare. Um, and in this story, she talks about she gets to the point where she couldn't breathe. Um, and goes out to her son's truck to see if she could get herself to the hospital, discovers she can't, and she cranks the air conditioner up all the way. And she says that she basically affixed her mouth to the air conditioner to let the car or the truck breathe for her. And that she had um, what she interpreted as a vision of um, essentially those in her family who passed coming to her um, and there was a horse and they basically said, okay, this is your moment. Do you, do you want to come with us or is your job here on earth still not done? And she says that she makes the conscious choice that, um, her job was not done. And so she basically takes every ounce of energy spiritually from, um, her, her family and all of the hope that she can draw to fight through that night. And she survives. and. I'm happy to say that she is now um, continuing her education um, to become uh, even higher up in the medical field to help in Navajo Nation. Um, and another thing I want to say, um, Carrie Lee, you should talk about the BARD uh, prison um, uh, fundraiser that you're doing. Um, I've also decided that any uh, proceeds that I might receive for this book that I'm donating to Navajo Nation um, in honor of those disproportionately lost. Um, I'm especially looking at ways to get uh, books out there as well. So, um, Carly, if you could talk both about the introduction writing, but also this really important BARD initiative, that would be really awesome. Yeah. So just similarly, uh, uh, organization I've worked with before is the BARD prison, prison initiative, BPI. Um, and they essentially provide college services. People can get college degrees while they're in prison. And so uh, we had a little uh, contest over Twitter and Instagram over the last uh, just few days to see if we could get 20 people to donate books or to buy books. And if they would buy them, then I'm donating 20. And I'm glad to say that we got to that number today. So um, we will be sending some books over to BPI. 
Uh, in terms of writing this, it was just so incredibly difficult because of the amount of information and the, and the constantly evolving nature of that information, right? Um, but the just the sheer amount, again, it's almost like we're not even talking about the Trump part of the book because there's so much else. But Trump happened too, you know, while while this was going on. And so uh, the conclusion, we we really do address what we call the the three Januaries or the three Wednesdays in January of 2021 um, with the insurrection and the impeachment. And and so we get into kind of, you know, what's even happened politically to our nation um, in, in the last few years and, and how that is intertwined you know, hand in hand with white supremacy. And Yahuru does an amazing job talking about Black Lives Matter and one of the appendices um, but I will just say that we had we had like multiple Google documents where all three of us would just be writing and dumping information and dumping stories and links. And I really think we probably have an entire book of just things that we cut out, like literally at least 60, 70,000 words of like well-written paragraphs of just stuff we had to cut because it just, you, you have to cut at some point. And um, I will say Ray Lynn is a beautiful lyrical writer. Um, you can tell she's a cultural historian because she writes very musically and lyrically. And so there's so much good, beautiful, like descriptive information in that, that like, I think she should just go like pull that out and, and make, uh, you know, a book out of just the, the descriptive language of what happened in the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor is basically what happened. I think, I mean, I can only imagine because it t- touches back to what we were saying earlier for those of, for, for those of you out there who want to read this for, for what the actual essays say, there's a million things that you'll never regret having taken the time to read, but the writing is this, this volume is it is this whole volume and the way you put it together, it, you don't, you don't reiterate uh, essays. You don't, you don't try to speak for other people. You just actually try to sit back. It, it feels anyway that you all read them, sat back from them, digested them, and then um, shared a way to uh, to think about this volume in a in a way that was just really really helpful. Um, also explaining where it comes from, but but just even more importantly, just how 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 do we make sense of something that doesn't make sense? And and that really ties me into something that I kind of would like to to close out our evening getting you all to maybe reflect on it because I'm so curious to hear about it. You know, this entire volume, it's about the present through the lens of the past. Um, I, I, I know historians often get so much flack for daring to uh, weigh in on the present because God forbid that could be presentism or even worse, potentially uh, uh, giving thoughts about what's next. But I am curious about the what's next. The, the pandemic's not over. Um, we, are, we still see the ravages of it in, in all kinds of ways that are hinted about in the book, but in ways that I'm not even sure we could have quite even seen as people were writing the essay. Uh, I, I think a lot about the devastation that's been fallen in inner cities right now. Uh, the, the, the 
peril we're in right now of reigniting a whole new war on crime to deal with what the ravages of, of this whole pandemic era were, uh, to, to, to not learn lessons from the past. Um, the, the, the looming election terrifies us, the Supreme Court terrors, terrifies us, and yet I keep thinking about those moments of hope. If you were to, to kind of think about where we're going, what what do you feel like at the end of this collection of essays and where we sit? Um, the historian, uh, not prophesizing, but 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 what is your assessment of this? What what what? Where are we headed? Do you think, based on what you what you're seeing, or what are you concerned about, or what are you hopeful for in any of those doses? You who wrote, what about you? It's time. I was gonna say it's time for you to take us to church. She will close it out. <laughs> okay. Well, should we make should we make him last? <laughs> <laughs> I should go last then. All right, we're gonna make you go last. Uh, what? I mean, any of you? Um, uh, Carrie Lee, you, you you jump in. Like I so I am in so many ways so incredibly dismayed that you know we're under democratic leadership. We've just been through this pandemic, and we still don't have a contingent of a real big contingent of politicians pushing for universal health care. That's my number one takeaway from this. As a historian, if we were ever going to get universal health care, it should have been during this pandemic. And the fact that we don't have it is an absolute travesty. It is a moral and ethical blight on our country. And the fact that we haven't made it a bigger uh, deal is going to be catastrophic in the next few decades due to long COVID, due to the stresses on the healthcare system, due to the elimination of rural hospitals. Um, All of this together is going to create Uh, not only problems in the labor market and problems economically, but what I fear, honestly, is is what's going to happen politically, right? Because we have so many people sick, so many people chronically ill, um, so many people dead, so many people in mourning. And then you have this whole other contingent of people who feel completely alone and isolated and their sense of community has been cut out and cut off. And, um, you know, the time is ripe for fascism. The time is ripe. As a historian, I will say that. And what has happened with Trump was, uh, you know, uh, they were, that was a tryout. That was, uh, you know, they were trying to see how far they could get. And what's going to happen next is what I really fear. And the fact that we are not taking this more seriously as a nation and we have not punished the people at the highest echelons uh, of, of trying to overthrow our government. Again, as a historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction, I can tell you what happens when those people are not punished and they are coming back into power and they are coming back into power with a vengeance and they are pissed off and they're angry. And if we don't actually do something proactively about it, we're going to have major problems in this country. And so that's that's the downer. Um, I'll let them be the uppers now. But 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 a realistic downer and, and, and one so tied to COVID, which is why I wanted you all to weigh in on this, because these are all instrumentally coming out of this moment of isolation and alienation and want and and deprivation, as you just noted. Raylynn. One thing we talked a lot about when we were working on this project is that pandemics and epidemics sort of tear off the lid uh, to American society and allow you to peer in at the wiring and all of the inequality became um, so much more exacerbated and clear. Um, And so I could list a litany of things that I'm certainly terrified about. Um, I think Kaylee is right. I mean, just the 
the long haulers alone. Um, There's so many people who are now chronically ill who need support. Um, One of the ways that I've been completely impacted by the pandemic has been housing, um, <laughs> living, I, I split my time between California and New York city and I've already been priced out of, um, uh, an apartment. And so people in my generation are, um, not only struggling to find housing, but having to take care of, um, the elderly and babies simultaneously. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I actually do want to let to say that, um, I actually came away from this project with a lot of hope. So on January 6th, Carrie Lee and I spent the entire day co-writing an article for CNN as it was unfolding. And historians, but especially almost, I mean, most uh, logical Americans were completely horrified by that. We never imagined that that could happen. But I keep trying to focus on the fact that there were millions upon millions upon millions of Americans who were sitting home watching online, watching on television, listening on radio, horrified by the desecration of, you know, the American capital. And so I actually came away with a lot of hope that there's a lot of people who care. Their eyes are now open. And once your eyes are open, whether that was from the 2020 uprisings or what happened on January 6th or all of the sort of fallout that's been happening politically, once they're open, you can't close them. You can't look away. And I think that that's uh, one of the huge um, unfortunate legacies of what happened with George Floyd, right? We couldn't look away. Um, and so I'm hopeful that every every person whose consciousness is opened um, is another step forward. But I know that Uhuru um, will, will take us home here. So <laughs> I'll let him do it. <laughs> well, and I think you, you both know that because uh, one of the things that we did in the very beginning, Heather, is we were trying to figure out what notable people who have passed we would want to write about. And the person who spoke to me then and continues to speak to me as John Lewis. And I was very much moved by his um, final letter to Black Lives Matter and the American people published posthumously in the New York Times, uh, Together We Can Redeem the Soul of America. And he articulates in that what I like to call the Lewis Doctrine, this idea that ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America, which I think is really powerful. It resonated with me because it was almost as if you were speaking to Black Lives Matter and saying, it's true, a leaderless model is where we have to go. Let's stop focusing on charismatic leadership and let's start focusing on what everyday individuals could do to promote democratic practice and to stand up for justice in in a real sense. Um, He said the way that you develop that extraordinary vision is through the study of the past, which as a historian, I absolutely loved. You know, I watched the pushback against critical race theory, the phantom menace of critical race theory and the banning of books. And I say, this is problematic because now more than ever, ever, we need to dig into that history. We need to understand where we need to take um, our movement forward. 30 said struggle is inevitable and constant, but the lessons of the past can help us respond. It's not simply in a looking back for the purpose of, of saying we've been through this before, looking, as you said, for those adjectives, but thinking concretely, um, creatively about reimagining what we can do. And then last but not least, we have to develop a global perspective. I found that really powerful because in the midst of the pandemic, um, I remember being on uh, ABC Good Morning Amer- America, the Australian version, and having indigenous activists write to me after my um, segment appeared and say, you know, thank you for coming on and talking about George Floyd. But what they're doing here is is saying that the, the movement there, that, that we need to be looking at the United States, we have the same problems here. The last person to die here died on Christmas Eve. His last words were, I can't breathe. 
uh, an indigenous person, our struggle is your struggle. If you ever get to come back on um, this program again, could you please make the case that this isn't just an American phenomenon? We're not marching for George Floyd. We're marching because this is global anti-Black racism. This is global white supremacy that we're tackling. Well, in the aftermath of the Chauvin verdict, I got a call to go back on Good Morning America, Australia, and about 30 seconds into the interview, remembering what this one activist had shared with me on LinkedIn, I said, well, of course, we know this is a global struggle and Black Lives Matter, the, the issues that are raised in the United States are also prevalent in the treatment of indigenous. So I will never be back on Good Morning America, Australia again. But the important thing about that was that that's the Lewis Doctrine, that where we can be hopeful is we have tremendous power in this moment to reimagine our future. And I think the essays in this volume are powerful in the ways that they point to, I think in very concrete ways, where we can focus that energy. Raylan talked about, um, which was an education for me, thinking about Native American indigenous people um, differently, the global, that is a global phenomena. Um, prisons as a global phenomena. Uh, the need for a third reconstruction as not something that's just about what happened in the States, but the long shadow of slavery and racial inequality. And most importantly, as I think about Iran right now, for a long time, we talked about race, class, and gender. But one of the things that is also front and center in this book is how we need to deal with um, gender inequality, uh, sexism, homophobia, and a very real sense in our country in this moment. So I, I come away from this extremely hopeful because I think, as John Lewis pointed to, we're those ordinary people with the extraordinary vision. Mm. We got to stay in good trouble. <laughs> Necessary trouble. Absolutely. And and thank you all. I think that that was uh, summed up better than anyone could possibly have summed up, not just the hope, but also really the, the, the reason why everyone should should sit with this volume for a while. Um, it isn't one voice. It is a collective of voices, um, ones that you all pull together in, in really, I, I just can't quit saying it in, in really a remarkable way. But if anything, it it, it celebrates, um, you know, the, the fact that we, that perspective matters at, at a time when people say that there is no truth, the uh, facts don't matter, you know, it, nothing matters. This whole volume is testimony to what we in fact can learn and what we can in fact be hopeful for. And, and John Lewis, of course, uh, not didn't just say it, but but lived it and and modeled it, and so I think that's a really fitting place to end. I, I really thank you all for joining me in this conversation, and I invite everybody to to think about the Navajo Nation, to think about Bard Prison Initiative, to think about any place that you might share this book, uh, any community groups that you might have that would be interested in this book, any any uh, friends and family, because I, I think that I have can honestly say I haven't uh, myself read something in a very long time that just kind of taught me in all kinds of very, very unexpected ways to think about something that was very unthinkable uh, in a productive way and in a powerful way. So uh, I needed that. And I think that we all need that. And it's thanks to you three that we have that. So thank you. And thank you to Haymarket Books for bringing us together. Uh, and, um, and thank you all for listening to this conversation. And uh, this is the book. You all should absolutely go out and, and get it. Uh, if for no other reason, because it, it asks us to take stock. 
and to, to do it better and to learn. And I think we can do that now because we've got some real roadmaps here. So thank you all so much for, for joining me and joining the three of us. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.